Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, verses six through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man there whose right hand was with, I'm sorry, and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here, and he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word profoundly this morning to our understandings. Let's ask him for that. Lord, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the things that aren't just completely spelled out for us. But that's not the way you have designed your Sabbath. That's not the way that you have designed our obedience to you, our love to you, the new covenant under Christ. It's, it's done differently. It's done from a heart, from a heart that loves and desires to, to please you. So as, as we try to understand what the meaning of a good Sabbath really is, Lord, I pray that you will just open our hearts and minds, that you will make it clear that you will give my speech clarity um, so that I say exactly what you want me to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I have one of those questions that I use from time to time at the beginning of a sermon, and the, they're designed to sort of slow you down and make you pause, maybe become a little introspective, and to, to think about what might look like a very simple question on the front end, but it really isn't. And, and, and that's simply the question, how would you define a good Sabbath? Now, there was a time in my life that a good Sabbath would have been a nice westerly breeze on a beautiful day at this time of year, you know, because the westerly breeze kind of flattens the ocean out. And then I could get our little sailboat out and sail up and down the coast at a nice, comfortable reach right there on the edge of the Gulf Stream. Ah, and that to me was a good Sabbath. Later on, when the girls came along and they were growing up, a good Sabbath was to spend time with family, to go out to a park, to go to the beach, to to putter around the house. That that was my idea of of a good Sabbath. For some of you, a good Sabbath is nothing more whether the dolphins win or, or the marlins or the heat or whoever you're following. I mean, it's a good Sabbath when your team wins regardless of what it is. But let's bring that more into a church context. What is a good Sabbath within a church? <laughs> Again, when we were growing you know, the girls up, a good Sabbath was just getting them out of bed, dressed, and to church on time without a major blow-up. 
I know that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about there. That's a good Sabbath, but I think for most people, church-wise, a good Sabbath is, oh, a a good people, um, a good uh, uh, worship time, good singing songs that you like, a a good emotional feeling, good fellowship with people that you really like to be with, and and a good and compelling and interesting, not too convicting and not too long message. And, and, and that's good, you know, and you leave after that and perhaps you go out to a dinner in a restaurant or a family dinner at home and your morning is done, the rest of the day is yours and that's considered to be a good Sabbath. If you're more connected with the church, a good Sabbath might be every pew filled or a good offering or a lot of children in children's church or, or, or maybe if you give altar calls, uh, a, a good response to the altar call. All of those things we use to define what a good Sabbath is, but I think that that's not what I mean. And in fact, I know it's not what I mean, but I don't think that's what is meant when we talk about what is a good Sabbath. Because, you see, most of those were things that were good to us, that that we like to do on our day off, if you will. But what I mean this in is the context is what is good to God? Because when we're talking about the Sabbath, we're talking about his day. We're, We're talking about a day that he blessed, that he made holy, that he set aside. So I think the real question is when we want to talk about what is a good Sabbath, that we need to ask ourselves, well, what is good to God? On this Sabbath day, which, by the way, I am talking about a day. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the after church. I'm not going to go off into the, to the technical aspects of what constitutes the Sabbath. But um, I am talking about a Sabbath day, not a Sabbath hour or a Sabbath morning. What constitutes in God's eyes a good Sabbath? Now, later on, I'm going to define what I mean by good because it's far deeper than just something that we enjoy. And I'll also say that the opposite of a good Sabbath is not a not good Sabbath or a bad Sabbath. But the way that I mean good, the opposite of a good Sabbath is an evil Sabbath. Because we're talking about good and evil. So it's a little bit deeper than perhaps it may seem on the surface. Now, we're, this is the second week that we've been talking about the Sabbath. And what we're seeing in our study of Luke, we're noticing that for quite some time now, Luke has been unveiling the good news of the kingdom of God. How important it is to Jesus in the preaching and teaching ministry that he has. And we've learned a lot about the good news. But we're in this segment now where John is going to be, I'm sorry, Luke is going to begin to tell Tell us some of the doctrines, the teaching of the good news. We're going into Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Not as extensive as Matthew's, but the teaching of Jesus. And right off the bat, he goes into his teaching on the Sabbath. Now, we're, we're noticing, and I'll come back to this, but we're noticing that this is an area of opposition that he is getting because his ideas of the Sabbath are completely different. And we need to remember that he's already made this statement of that the, the, new, uh, the, the new kingdom, the new idea, the new principles and doctrines of Christianity are simply not going to fit into the old wineskins, the brittle wineskins of Judaism. It will split them 
because there's a different focus. Now, we, we need to see what the continuity is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't want to lose the wine, but there's a, there's a new wineskin that is necessary in that. And, and, and we're going to see that as far as the Sabbath is concerned, it primarily, Jesus is saying simply the legalistic set of rules that the Pharisees and scribes have centered around the Sabbath simply are not going to work in the new administration because that is simply looking at what you can't do on the Sabbath and not recognizing how glorious a day that our Lord has given us. Last week he said, I am the Lord, I am the sovereign of the Sabbath. One of the most profound statements of his divinity that can be made because God and God alone established the Sabbath and he alone is sovereign over it. So Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. If you remember, he took us back to that discussion with David and eating the showbread. And without going too deeply back into it, because it is quite a complex relation or a reference that he's making, basically what he's saying is that the Sabbath is not a set of rules. We have to look at it and ask what was the intent of God's heart? What does he want? What is the purpose of setting aside a day in seven where we do no work? And and we realize that, wait a minute, we're looking at this backwards This is a privilege. This is a gift. God has told us that we can get everything that accomplished, even though we think we won't, and even though the world tells us we can't, we can get everything that we need to do done in six days, set aside that seventh day, and it is a blessing. It's a day of blessing. It's a day of holiness. And so we're trying to rethink the way that we look at the Sabbath. I know I told you last week that that was going to be a real positive message. And this week I was going to hammer you about what you weren't doing on the Sabbath. Um, it's not going to turn out exactly like you think. Okay, so don't brace for me, me, me coming and saying a bunch of do's and don'ts. Because actually that would be closer to what the Pharisees are doing than it would be to what Jesus is saying. And we want to keep on that um, as we go through the text. So with that said... Let's jump into this second um, discussion of what exactly the Sabbath is, keeping in mind that we're trying to answer the question, what is a good Sabbath? Well, look at the sixth verse. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now, Luke is not alone in this. All the gospel writers, when we sort of enter a new scene, they they tend to like to set the scene for us. And that's what Luke is doing here. He's telling us the the time uh, of this. He's telling us the place. And he's telling us the activity. And then he introduces sort of the central focus of this particular encounter. So the time, he simply says, on another Sabbath. Now, all through this, we've noticed that Luke has been very vague in his time designations. He's not giving us a chronological sequence of events. In fact, the only thing we know about this particular encounter is A, that it happened on a Sabbath, which of course, according to the Hebrews, was Friday evening at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown. And secondly, that it wasn't the same Sabbath that we were talking about last week in the grain fields. Okay, so it's a different Sabbath. Now, what we should start recognizing by now, and Luke, is, is that he's organized his gospel not sequentially for a, for a reason. Uh, 
And so therefore, we need to kind of be cognizant of, well, why did you organize your gospel this way? Because it's completely different than, say, Matthew did. And, and one of the reasons was, is this idea of the new wine not fitting in the old wineskins and the Sabbath being one of the primary examples of that as far as the, as the way it had been corrupted by Judaism. So it's a perfect example, and he's given us two right at the beginning of his discussions of the various principles. Um, the place also is sort of specific and then sort of not specific because we learn that it is in a synagogue, and that's very specific. The reason it's not specific is because he doesn't tell us what town we're in again, just like in the grain fields. He was in a grain field, but we weren't told what town that was. And, and I think that the fact that Luke isn't telling us the town simply gives us the idea that we are still in Capernaum. Capernaum, of course, was the headquarters of Jesus. A lot happened in Capernaum. So I, I don't think it, it's, uh, it's stretching the text for us just to imagine that here we are in Capernaum. Now, the only reason I point that out is because that sort of makes a connection, doesn't it? Because we were in the synagogue at Capernaum earlier when Jesus cast out the demon from the demon-possessed man. And so we're going to draw some, some connections, some parallels. We're going to see some connections between those two events. And the third thing that we learn here in the opening verse is the activity. Once again, notice that Jesus is teaching. And this brings right back into the forefront what we've been saying all along, that the teaching and preaching of the Word of God was central to Jesus' ministry. Back in the fourth chapter, the 43rd verse, you remember, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For this purpose, I have been sent. So this is primary. I mean, all the miracles are great and the healings are great, but they are to authenticate the good news. Now he's telling us some of the doctrines of that good news. So it's, a, it's the central aspect of what Jesus wants to do. Now, while we're there, we're in a synagogue, people clustered all around, Sometimes, um, probably on Saturday, it could be Friday night, but normally it would be on Saturday. They're clustered around Jesus, and conspicuously, there is a man there who has a withered hand. Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us, because he's a physician, and he notices these kinds of things, that it's the right hand. Now, we don't know why the man has a withered hand. It might have been a congenital deformity, something that he has always had. It might have been a disability caused by some kind of an accident earlier. It could be the result of a disease. But for whatever reason, the man's right hand is withered. The, the, the muscles are atrophied so that he doesn't have use of it. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text, but when Luke says it's the right hand, Scripture, when it talks about the right arm or the right arm, well, that's the hand or the arm of power. That, that's the, the working hand, if you will. Um, and, 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 and so I, I think that there's at least the idea that this man is, is disabled in some way. He, he can't work. He can't do what he normally would. He can't provide for himself and his family. He's dependent on others to take care of him. And so therefore, he is suffering. Now, the Jews know this. 
the, the Pharisees know this. And, and they also know that Jesus is compassionate. And that when he is confronted with someone who is suffering and he has this penchant for healing people and taking them out of that suffering and it's, he doesn't seem to care what day it is when he does that, well, we get the idea that there's a setup going on here. And I think that is pretty much made clear by the next verse. Look in verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, one more thing I want you to see about this, this man with a withered hand. Notice his anonymity. Okay? Notice that there's no communication except Jesus telling him what to do. Um, he's, he's just there. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his history. He's totally and completely anonymous, very similar to the man in the synagogue earlier when his demon was cast out. Now, what this does is it takes our attention off the man and places it on whatever dialogue is going on. Earlier, it was a dialogue between Jesus and the demon. That's where our focus was supposed to be. Now, it's the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that's where our focus needs to be. The, the, the man who is there, even though he is going to bring out the compassion in Christ, he is somewhat secondary to the story. But then we read that the Pharisees and the scribes are all there, and, and they're clustered around Jesus. And as I said, I, I smell a rat here. You know, the, the, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but I mean, they're waiting to accuse him. I mean, that they're setting up, knowing who Jesus is, they've set him up so that they can collect dirt on him and have some reason to accuse him. Now, one of the things we miss when we take Scripture the way that we're taking it here on Sunday morning is that we take it in little bitty chunks. And so we tend to miss the flow. We tend to miss the larger themes that the author like Luke has written into them. And one of those is the growing animosity amongst the religious leaders against Jesus. Um, there's almost like a crescendo going on. Now, Jesus is going to stop that crescendo by kind of moving around. But there's this, there's this growing animosity that we see. In fact, if you go back, just beginning of this ministry very quickly, you, you may remember that it kind of started in a synagogue in, in Nazareth, his hometown. And this is what we read about Jesus at that time. And all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that they were coming that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? I mean, they had nothing but good things to say about him. And of course they got mad at him when he, he said what he said and they tried to kill him, but at least they started out thinking he was great. Later on, fast forwarding to the synagogue at Capernaum when he cast out the man with the demon. Well, we read this and reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. That evening, they lined up at Peter's house to be saved. They even chased Jesus to a desolate place the next day. So he's, he's very popular at this time. But then when we get to the healing of the paralytic, you remember that? You remember when they lowered him down through the roof and they put him in front of Jesus? And remember Jesus said, instead of you're healed, he said, your sins are forgiven. And that's when they responded this way. They said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? 
Because only God can forgive sins. And so they accused Jesus of blasphemy there. And it's almost like they made the decision right then and there. Well, we're going to have to check up on this guy because this is trouble. And so sure enough, the next time we see Jesus in a public place, he's at Levi's house at a feast after Levi's conversion. So what are the Pharisees doing there? I mean, they wouldn't get close to Levi's house because he is defiled. He's an absolute sinner. But there they are somehow checking up on Jesus. And of course, we know they grumble at his disciples. How come you are eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then we saw the same thing later on, what we looked at last week, in the grain field outside probably of Capernaum. Well, what were the Pharisees doing in the grain field? Because that's on the outskirts of town. They can only walk a thousand yards on the Sabbath. So they were obviously there checking up on Jesus. And here we see that they are looking actively for a reason to accuse him. So we've sort of got this sort of crescendo going on. And of course, at the end of this passage, we're going to see that they're going to start plotting his death. They're going to start plotting to kill him from this time on. Luke doesn't make that clear, but Matthew and Mark do. Well, anyway, this is the scene that we have right here in the synagogue. Now, there's another very powerful image that is here. And I just have to sometimes decide what I'm going to include and what I'm going to not include. And I'm going to kind of push that off to the after church. We're going to talk about it in the after church. But Jesus sitting in the midst of these Pharisees is so close to Jesus sitting in the midst of the sinners at Levi's feast. I want to draw a comparison between those two. But as I said, I'm going to move on this morning and, and, and move directly into um, the, what happens next. So um, look in verse 8. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And the two things I want you to notice here. First of all, Notice that Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, it's not made clear to us whether this is the omniscience of the divine nature of Christ who knows all things, or whether it is the human wisdom and discernment of the human side having been fed by the divine side, we're not told. But what we are told is that Jesus looks right through them. He sees that they have set him up. He sees that there's a trap. And he walks directly into it with his eyes open. And my question here is, can you actually call it a trap if the person you're trapping walks into the trap and springs it on purpose? Doesn't that mean that the trappee has now become the trapper? I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but you see, Jesus did these kinds of things. I mean, he never hesitated to give the Pharisees the ammunition they were looking for whenever they had a confrontation like this. Later on, he's going to tell Pilate, I have come to bear witness to what? Bear witness to the truth. And Jesus would never back down from the truth. And so he's going to lay it flat out in front of them, even though they think that they have set him up and and trapped him. But the second thing I want you to see here is that in Jesus Christ, we always see compassion triumph. He was 
compassionate. That was one of his greatest attributes. When he looks at this man and he sees the withered hand and he knows the suffering that he's going through, he is going to accomplish what he's capable of accomplishing because he has that compassionate heart. Let's never forget how compassionate our our Savior is. And, and when, he, when, when we think we have sinned beyond the fact that anyone can forgive us, recognize that your Lord is the compassionate one and is always anxious to heal whenever he is confronted with this kind of a situation. Well, anyway, nonetheless, there he is. Um, and, he, and, and he knows that they've set him up. But look what he does. He, instead of just saying, okay, you're healed with the man sitting down, he knows that they're all waiting and with bated breath to see whether or not he's going to heal the man. So he says, okay, hey, you come, come stand up. Come here, stand up and stand before me. Let's make a spectacle of this thing. All right. Let's make this into something that no one can possibly deny. I love the way that Luke creates the drama. He's very good at creating the drama of these situations. And if we read too fast, we, we, we miss that. We, we miss the fact that there is such a drama. So Jesus creates that drama, which leads up to the most profound question that he asks next. And uh, we, we just have to take some time on this. Look in the ninth verse. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, let's just look at the question first because I like the the way Jesus responds. Again, I told you he's walking with eyes open into the trap. Um, I love the way John MacArthur puts this in, in, in his commentary. He says, as it was often the case, the Lord's question impaled his opponent's on the horns of dilemma. And that's exactly what's going on here. He has impaled them because no matter how they answer, they lose. And Jesus was a master at doing this. In other words, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy life? Okay, what is the definition of good? If they say, oh yeah, it's good to do, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, well then, what are you here for? And what have you set him up to? Your whole plan just falls apart and you look like a bunch of idiots. But if you say, no, it's not lawful to do good, you have just gone against the bulk of Scripture and there's so many passages that talk about doing good, especially on the Sabbath, And you have shown your hypocrisy, not to mention your heartlessness over the well-being of this man. So regardless of how they respond, they lose. But I don't think that's why Jesus asked this question. And by the way, we'll talk about this later a little bit. In Matthew, it's different. Mark and Luke, the question is in the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew, it's in the mouth of uh, of the Pharisees. And Jesus definitively answers. So if you, if you find it difficult to, when, when I talk about a definitive answer that Jesus gives, here in Luke, it is 
embedded, implied in the question and what he does afterwards when he acts. But it is specifically and explicitly stated elsewhere. You don't need to worry about it because uh, it doesn't mean that they got the stories wrong because there's always a back and forth. There's always a conversation. And so whether it was in the mouth of Jesus reported or in the mouth of the Pharisees reported, it's all exactly the same principle. And that is the idea of what is good. What is good to do? Now, let's delve into that because remember what our question is this morning. What is the definition of a good Sabbath? How do you define a good Sabbath? Well, what we have learned so far, going back to the grain field without going into it in any great depths, what we have learned so far is that the Sabbath is not a bunch of rules to legalistically be adhered to, not a bunch of do's and don'ts. And in fact, if you are waiting, in our discussion of the Sabbath, if you are waiting for me to tell you what is right to do on the Sabbath and what is wrong to do on the Sabbath, you've missed the point already, because that's not what Jesus is talking about. If you come up to me after the service and you say, is this right or wrong to do on the Sabbath, you know what I'm going to say? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, because that's the way that Jesus answered it, and that is the definitive answer, and all the mystery is cleared up about what you do or don't do on the Sabbath. But let's just, let's just go back and, and say, what, what do we know? Because this is one of the questions that people are always asking me. Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to do that? How are we supposed to observe the Sabbath? Is it a full day? Is it not a full day? Is it something that's part of the Old Testament? Or is it part of the New Testament? People have myriad questions about how they should spend the Sabbath. And I'm only going to answer it one way. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, so far, what we know towards that end is what we recited earlier in the Ten Commandments. I mean, we do have some guidelines in the Old Testament especially. And the Old Testament says this in Exodus, first of all. It says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. So we know that work is not permitted on the Sabbath in a normal six-day-a-week kind of of perspective. And we get some degree of understanding, but not much. We can't plow or harvest on the Sabbath. Most of us aren't farmers, and so we we don't do that anyway. Um, We can't buy or sell. We shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. Okay, that engages most of us. We we, we don't carry heavy burdens. That kind of wrapped up with what it means to work on the Sabbath. But I think what we end up with here is a question of how do we define work? And, and we used some of the ridiculous examples of the Pharisees last week uh, to talk about what work was, spitting in the dust was plowing. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, and that's the aberration of it. But at the same time that we will say that's crazy, we will still ask for a list of do's and don'ts. Now, my question here is, who decides what's work and who doesn't work? I mean, is it a legalistic set of laws or are we going to have to go into the heart intent of God and ask what God intends for us to do on a day that he sanctified and set aside for himself? In other words, what is good? Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says. He doesn't just say it is lawful to do good. That comes out of Matthew. He he, he incorporates what he says in his question. 
And his question is an either or. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And then is it lawful to save a life or to destroy a life on the Sabbath? So in other words, Jesus doesn't just give us a set of rules, do's and don'ts, can's and cannots. What he, what he says is there's a distinction here. There is something that is good and there is something that is the opposite of good in the context in which we are talking about on the Lord's Sabbath. That means that the opposite of good is not bad. The opposite of good is evil. Now, here's, here's the way that Jesus has just presented this to these Pharisees. And see, and see if you stay with me here. What he has said is he says, we have two ideas of good that, that, that are colliding each, against each other. Two football teams with two different ideas of good are just coming head to head. Now, if I do good on the Sabbath, does that mean I heal this man or I don't? Now, let's just put it in, in a different perspective. Here I am, Jesus speaking, I'm putting words in his mouth, but I think this is what he meant. Here I am with the ability to heal. This man is suffering. This man's life is impacted by his withered hand. Now, what's good? What is good according to God's definition of good? To heal the man and utterly change his life or to say to the man, well, if you had come on another day, I'd have been glad to heal you. But since it's the Sabbath and I cannot do any work on the Sabbath, then I'm not going to heal you. You're going to have to just continue on with a withered hand and you're not going to be able to do any work because I'm leaving town tomorrow. What's good? And if it's not good, is it evil? Tell me this. What would have been evil for Jesus to do in this situation, according to God's standards? To allow the man to not be healed. That wouldn't just be bad. That would be evil. So what does that say about the Pharisees' idea of good? It's actually not good, is it? It's evil. And so Jesus makes a huge distinction about how we spend the Sabbath. There's a good and the good is not by our definition. The good is God's definition. It is not this church's definition. It's not the CRC's definitions, the Presbyterians, the Southern Baptists, or the Roman Catholics. It is God's identification and definition of what is good. That's huge, folks. That is so big. Now, once again... We have an answer here that is implied. But before I do that, let me give you a sort of a hyperbolic illustration. It's hyperbole, but I think it's going to make, get my point across. Imagine that you are part of a religious group that has an absolutely hard, fast rule. Thou shalt not embrace anyone on the Sabbath. Hands off, okay? Occupy the same space, but no embracing. No, no putting your arms around anyone. Okay? And that's a hard, fast rule. And that's their idea of good on the Sabbath. And you're at, uh, at Sunday dinner, and someone eats something, goes down the wrong way, gets caught in their windpipe, and they start to choke to death and turn blue. And you know the Heimlich maneuver. 
You know that you can just throw your arms around them, get in the right position on their diaphragm, give a a, a jerk, and that's going to be dislodged from their windpipe. You know that. You can save that person's life. What is good and what is evil for you to do in that circumstance? To save life or to destroy it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. There's, There's a good and there's an evil. Of course, a child knows the answer to that. It is good to save the man's life. Because he's choking to death and you have the ability to save him. Jesus said this himself. Again, Matthew is more explicit in what Jesus' answer is. But Jesus in Matthew tells a little bit of a parable when he says this. He says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man's life than a sheep? That's his question to them. And then he comes through with the definitive statement that answers every question and removes all the mystery. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now all we have to do is define good. (laughs) Not all that easy. But you know... If we really wanted to find what good is, God didn't leave us as orphans. He didn't leave us to wonder about it. He didn't leave us like the Pharisees where they make up their own rules and have their own ideas about what is good and not good. He he gave us his book. And this is filled from one end to the other about what God says is good. Let Let me just give you a smattering. Okay? Um... When he talks about what is going, it, it is, is, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Guess what? That's good. It is lawful to do good. On the Sabbath, you want to know what God says you can do on the Sabbath, that's it. Or at least that's part of it. There's much, much more. The book is full of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I mean, just keep going from one end of the book to the other. You're going to find out what God has said is a good Sabbath. He did not leave you to wonder. Well, I have a lot more to say about that, but let's go ahead and finish the text um, and, and, and see what happens when he says that. Okay, Jesus said to them, after he asked that question, remember, in Jesus, is an, it, it's, he's asking the question, he's not saying it. And so, in verse 10, and after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Again, Luke is really good at creating the drama of the situation. Remember when Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth and after he read that Isaiah 61, he sat down and Luke says, the eyes of everyone were upon him. Everyone is looking at him. And so now we have this drama. Jesus looks around as I am doing now and he locks eyes with every single person who is there, especially the Pharisees. And he wants to make sure that they are watching him. And he builds the drama. And then notice what he does. Well, notice what he doesn't do. 
He tells the man, if I, if I had one, I, I'd, I'd put it inside my sleeve. He says, stretch out your hand. You know, don't miss these little things in Scripture. This is the richness of Scripture. You read past it so quickly. You know, when Jesus healed, quite often he would, he would do many things. He, he, there's so many different ways that he healed. But usually there was some activity you know, whether he exercises the demon or takes Peter's mother by the hand or Jarius' daughter and takes her by the hand or whether or not he tells the man who's a paralytic, you pick up your bed and walk. Uh, at least he touches people. He says you're healed or he says your, your sins are forgiven or he spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on the, 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 the blind man's eyes and sends him to the pool of Siloam to wash it off. There's activity, things that are done. There's none of that here. He doesn't even say you're healed. He doesn't say your sins are forgiven. He says, just reach your hand out. Now, do you realize that doesn't break anyone's laws? Even the laws of the Pharisees. There's no law that they have to stick out your hand. And that's all he does. You just stick your hand out and it's healed. Now, The point is this, not only did he not break their laws, but no one can do that except God. No one can heal that way. No one can will it. There's no smoke, no mirrors, no nothing. He simply says, reach out your hand. And when he does, the hand is perfectly healed. One would think that the Pharisees would fall down on their faces before Jesus and say, we are so wrong. No one can do that unless God is with him. And to repent right there on the spot. But amazingly, they don't do that. Notice what, notice what happens in the 11th verse. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were, they were angry. They were, they were so angry. Well, Jesus was also angry, um, uh, Mark tells us. He was grieved by their unbelief. And, and you see, that's the answer. What we're seeing is the tragedy of unbelief. If there was ever an example that miracles alone don't save people, that you could do the most incredible miracle in front of the person who is not saved, and they say, oh, all I need is a miracle, and then I'll believe in Jesus. No, they wouldn't. Because if these guys don't believe that Jesus is Lord because of the way he healed this man, no one's going to believe because of a miracle alone. Unfortunately, it's what Isaiah said earlier. Or what Isaiah said hundreds of years ago, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the travesty, the tragedy of unbelief. They can't. Believe. Peter puts it this way, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. John says in the 12th chapter of his book, they did not believe, they could not believe. And so we are seeing the blindness of unbelief. And so Luke is kind of generous here to, to the Pharisees. He says they went out and decided to start to talk about what they were going to do with Jesus. As I said earlier, Matthew and Mark are a little bit more to the point. They go out and start talking about how to destroy him. From this point on, they're trying to kill him. Now, once again, I want you to remember the distinction here. And then I want to try to bring this alive for us. The distinction here is between 
two ideas of what is good. The Pharisees have an idea of what is good. Jesus has an idea of what is good. The Pharisees, it would have been perfectly good if this man went home and he did not get healed. And Jesus said, I'm going to stick to the traditions of the elders. And this is the way that we're going to spend the Sabbath. They would have had to have say, oh, that is good. And they'd be perfectly satisfied. Hey, he's one of us. But Jesus' idea of good is that he has the ability to heal. And to do good on the Sabbath would be to heal the man on the Sabbath. To not heal him is to do evil. So to do good on the Sabbath is God's good. To do evil is anything that is not God's good. I think that we can continue to look in the New Testament. James really validates this when he says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you want to know what is good to do on the Sabbath, there you've got it. That's good in the eyes of God. David recognized that sacrifices and all the legal things that we do is not acceptable in God's eyes. In the 51st Psalm, he says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Jesus himself said this in Matthew. He says, If you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. But profound words. All right, let's bring it home. I promised you to browbeat you, didn't I? Let's bring it home here. What what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? How are you supposed to spend your time with the Lord? What is good to do on the Sabbath. Jesus has said, I'll remind you once again, I'm going to drill this into you. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, as far as you're concerned, what is good? What does good mean? There was a tree in the Garden of Eden. And it was in the center of the garden. And of all the trees in the world, not just the trees in that garden, but every tree on earth, God said, they're all yours. You you can eat from them. You can cut them down and and make uh, houses. You can do whatever you want to. They're all yours except this one tree. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason you cannot touch this tree or even eat from it is that this is my sovereign domain. I and I alone determine what is good and evil. Now, evil is not an entity in itself. God is good. All that he does is good. All that he thinks is good. All that he implements in good. His plans are good. There is nothing in God but good. He is the definition of good. Evil does not stand across from God and equal force against him like the yin and the yang in some kind of dualistic system. Evil is the privation of the good. It's simply the not good. So if you are doing something on the Sabbath that God has not designed or designated as good, then it's the privation of the good and it's evil. It pains me to say that I think that most of 
Christendom. They don't have good Sabbaths. They have evil Sabbaths. Because we do things that God didn't tell us to do on the Sabbath. I want to read you a passage from Isaiah. This is as close as I'm going to get. Because to me, this is the clearest statement that God could possibly make to you, each and every one of you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. If I were to tell you what to do and not to do, then I'm a Pharisee. And we already know that doesn't work. That's not the way Jesus set things up. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to want to be with Him and to spend time with Him. You're supposed to want to please Him, not try to figure out how close you can get to the edge without stepping over. Not a list of can and cannots or do's and don'ts. You're supposed to be desirous of spending the day with God in the way that He wants you to spend it. And once again, I'm talking about a 24-hour day, not a morning. Not an hour. But this is what Isaiah says, and Brother Frank read it earlier, the moment in the Word. Absolutely gorgeous. I think that it definitively answers the question, what is a good Sabbath? God starts out by saying, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath, by the way, this is in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. It's actually in your bulletin under the moment in the Word. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, you know what that means? If you stop kicking my Sabbath around, If you'll stop trampling on it, if you'll stop belittling it and making it other than what I designed it to be, to act as if it's not important to me, if I didn't set it aside at creation to be something of great importance, if you'd stop trampling on my Sabbath. I think the second thing that he says pretty much says it all. From doing your pleasure on my holy day. From doing your pleasure, what you want to do, what you say is good, what you say is okay, what you say is acceptable. From doing your pleasure, God says, on my holy day. Genesis 2, God blessed the Sabbath and he made it holy. He set it aside for a purpose, for a reason. He gave it in the Ten Commandments for a purpose, for a reason. It's not so we can make up all kinds of laws and then try to get around those laws to try to figure out what we can and cannot do on God's day. I mean, he he goes on in Isaiah. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly. If you honor my Sabbath. If, if, you, if you give it the same credence that I give it, I set it aside so that I can spend This is God. I'm putting words in his mouth, which I shouldn't do. But just imagine that God set this aside for our edification. I, I, I think about that first question and answer of the, of, the, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What's the chief end of man? Chief end of man is what? To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what God is saying. That's what the Sabbath is designed to do. For you to honor me, to glorify me, and to enjoy for me forever. Notice that he says that if you will, if you call the Sabbath a delight. If you recognize that this is a gift. If you recognize that I have set aside a day that I will quicken you to my presence and I will grow you and I will edify you and I will love you and I will strengthen you on this day. This is a day of blessing. This is a day that is a gift. 
Don't fill it with stuff that you do the rest of the week and make it as mundane, as miserable as those days. This is a day for you to commune with me. Then he gives a blessing. Then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. You want to know what you can do on the Sabbath and what you can't? That's it. Delight in the Lord. Glorify him. Honor him. Worship him. Praise him. Thank him. Spend time with him. Pray to him. I mean, that's what the Sabbath was designed to do. I don't know about you. I don't do that. I try, but I don't always. I don't always fill my day with the Lord. Sometimes I do other things. Sometimes I seek my own delight on on the day that he has set aside for me to spend with him. And every moment that I don't do his good on the Sabbath, I'm doing something evil. And and I explained that. I, I know that sounds harsh, but I explained it, you know. That's why I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to browbeat you. And some of you are going to walk out of here and say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Some of you are going to crawl out of here because you're going to understand what this means. That to not do the good of God on his day is to do evil. So I want to end this the same way that I ended last week. We have work to do, folks. Here at New Hope Community Church, we have work to do. Post-pandemic, we need to readdress this. We need to put our Sabbath back together. Now, once again, it, it, and I'll talk about this in the after church, uh, I'm one of those, and you may not agree with me, but to me, the Sabbath doesn't have to be midnight to midnight on Sunday. That's more in the Western sense of what it is, the Hebrews they would have been Saturday night to Sunday night. And, 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 and however it's done, it's a 24-hour day. But we here at New Hope Community Church, we need to address this because we are not doing good on the Sabbath when we have one service and that's it. And you come for an hour or however long it lasts and then you go home. That's not observing God's Sabbath. That's not a good Sabbath. And so what we need to do is we need to come together as a body of Christ. And I am talking about the whole church now. I'm not talking about the 10 who normally show up on Sunday night or at the Sunday night um, uh, services. Or if we decide to move that to Saturday night. I'm talking about this entire congregation. We need to get together and we need to determine as brothers and sisters and disciples of Christ. How are we going to spend God's Sabbath? And once we decide, as a body, then we better do it. Because we would be making a vow before God that we would honor Him on His day rather than doing our own pleasure. You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us, first of all, because I know, and I can speak personally, and I think I can speak for us as a church, I I don't always do good on your Sabbath. I know that I defile it. I know that I seek my own pleasure. I I, I know that I've turned it into something mundane. And I know, and I think anyone who is honest with them knows that I, I have rationalized in my head what is okay and what is not okay. 
to do on your Sabbath, rather than just to recognize that this is your day and we give it all to you. I pray that you would make that evident to us as a church, how we're going to do this. Um, how, how are we going to spend this entire day honoring and worshiping you, and giving you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.